All right, Mercy, well, it's good to be with you. I look forward to this day every single Sunday week, and uh, I get to lead this church. I love it so much. We are right now in a sermon series titled David and His Songs, David and His Songs. We are on our last week. Uh, There are about 150 psalms in the Bible, 73 of them were written by King David, and 14 out of these 27 are connected to key events from David's life. So when we look at that psalm, we're also looking at the story and the context that produced that song. In week one, we looked at Absalom's betrayal in Psalm 3. In week two, we looked at David's moral failure with Bathsheba And Psalm 51. Last week we looked at how God delivered at once David from all his enemies and from Saul's hand. And that was Psalm 18. Today we're going to probably discuss one of the toughest subjects for a Christian. And it's the topic of waiting. Waiting on God. From Psalm 57. Let me just remind you what a song is. This whole series, uh, we've been talking about how we need a song. And a song is not a song like a melody, music. A song is truth about God or his word that comes from him to your soul, to your heart for a season and carries you through that season. So whatever season you are in, the question that we want to ask each other is, do I have a song? Is there something about God that stands out to me that carries me through? Is there something about God's truth or God's word that helps me be faithful? Because I believe Christians do not thrive without a song. And God wants to give you a song. So let me talk about the background of Psalm 57. It is from first, excuse me, oh, I have to go to first Samuel chapter 22. Right now, King David, King David is on the run from another king. Well, he's not king right now. He's anointed king. He hasn't been enthroned yet. He's been commissioned, but he has not seized the throne. And right this very moment, King Saul, the guy who fell out of favor with God, is persecuting David, seeking to kill him. And David is on the run And we find David in two types of caves, and we'll read about them. First cave that David runs into, which would be a refuge, a type of refuge, is in 1 Samuel chapter 22, verses 1 through 2. David departed from there, he was in the land of Philistines, and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. And everyone who was in distress, and everyone who was in debt... And everyone who was bitter in soul gathered there with him about 400 men. And David takes these men to be his soldiers. Now go two chapters later. In chapter 24 of Samuel, we read this story. When Samuel, when Saul returned from following in Philistines, he was told, behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men. I mean... Navy SEALs here. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel and went to seek David and his men. 
in front of the wild goat's rocks. And he came to the sheepfolds by the way where there was a cave. And Saul went in to relieve himself. Bible was like super detailed. <laughs> now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave. So David's right there. He's being persecuted. And the man of David said to him, here, finally, is the day when your God, Lord, has given your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. Then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe, and afterward David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. He said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord. The Lord's anointed to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. There are treasures for our life. There are waters for our soul. Lord, as we explore this subject of trusting you, waiting on you, God, would you build up our hearts, give us encouragement, feed us with strength. God, the Bible says those who wait on you will renew in strength. Oh God, we are tired. Some of us are discouraged. Some of us abandoned our prayers. I pray this word today would help us lean in and trust you. Amen. So, you got the story? David hunted David in the cave, Saul's right there, David can take him out, and David decides, no, I'm going to wait on God to do his part and put me on the throne. The Bible talks a lot about waiting. Let me read some verses over you. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord. In the morning, Lord, you hear my voice. In the morning, I lay my request before you and wait expectantly. We wait in hope for the Lord. He is our hope and our shield. Be still before the Lord. I'm just reading a bunch of verses for you. And wait patiently for him. Do not fret when people succeeded in their ways, when they carry out their wicked schemes. Lord, I wait for you. You will answer, Lord my God. Last one. I waited patiently for the Lord. He turned to me and heard my cry. The Bible insists and commands the followers of Jesus to wait on God. Now, we could wait on God for three things, at least from experience. First, we could be waiting on God for his answers. Have you, do you have a prayer you're bringing before God and asking God for an answer? And you're in a season of waiting for that answer. Jesus says, ask, and it will be given, knock, and it will be opened, seek, and you will find. But you know what Jesus didn't say that I wish he said? How long the knocking has to be? How long the searching has to be? How long the seeking has to be? He didn't say. Are you asking God for things that you know are his will? You know, it's one thing when a Christian asks for a Ferrari. It's like, okay, I don't know if that's God's will. It's another thing when a Christian asks for something he knows or she knows is clearly God's will. It's God's will that others be saved. 
It's God's will that injustice stops. It's God's will that you would be reconciled to your loved ones. And you're seeking and asking for an answer, but God seems to be not providing an answer. You're in a season of waiting. Some of us, don't you just want like God, just say no. Like, I want a yes, but I would love for you even to say a no, and I can move on with my life. But you have me waiting. One, waiting on answers. Number two, waiting on God's promises. The thing about God's promises is he takes his time. We don't get this in the Bible because we just read it, and we don't get a sense of time. Do you know how long it took Abraham to hold his baby? 25 years. From the time he was promised to the time he held his baby. You know Caleb who walks into uh, the promised land as a spy and then goes back, and God promises Caleb, I will give you a portion of this land. Do you know how long it takes for Caleb to get his land, his real estate? 45 years. Do you know David is anointed as king at the age of 12? At the age of 30, finally he becomes a king only of part of Israel, of Judah. And at the age of 37, he becomes the king of all of Israel. 25 years. You have to understand that God's promises take time. What promise are you waiting to be fulfilled in your life? And you're like, where is it? Is it the promise that God has predestined you to be conformed to the image of his son? Romans chapter 8, 29. This is a promise. God is transforming you into the image of his son. But you know what? It takes a long time. Transformation of our minds takes a long time. To go from a person, Eugene here, super selfish, super self-absorbed, to a Eugene who is God-centered, selfless, takes time. We live in a world where I think most of our technology is advancing to, to solve one problem, slowness, <laughs> waiting. We have slow cooking, that's too slow. So we got microwaves and fast food. Mail is too slow, we got text messages and emails. I don't know what else, trains or ships are too slow, we got the airplane. We live in a world that has sped up our lives and has eliminated waiting. I remember a long time ago, and this is so embarrassing, I was complaining to Albina that she should buy a new tea kettle. And she's like, well, why? It's too slow. It's taking like a minute and 15 seconds. I want it faster. It's just ridiculous how we are. We live in a world that has eliminated waiting. So no wonder when Christians come to God, they expect things immediately. But things take time. The power of indwelling sin takes time. God's working his promises into our lives, but maybe you're waiting. But here's number three. We could be waiting on God's answers. We could be waiting on the fulfillment of God's promises. Number three, and this is so important. This is where I was smitten with convictions. This is for me. Waiting on God's green light. Waiting 
for authorized action. Think about the decisions we make daily. How do you make these decisions? How do you go about deciding what to do? Look at how the church in Acts 15 made a decision. I love this. In chapter 15, the apostles write a letter from Jerusalem to the Gentile believers solving the question, should Gentiles obey all of the laws of the Old Testament? And the apostles come to some decisions. But I love how they came to this decision. Check this out. Can we put it on the screen? For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. You see how they made this decision? It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. I am so good at taking part of that second part. I am so good at figuring out what seems good to me, to what seems logical to me, what seems wise to me. I am so good at considering what I want. But Christians, the way you make a decision is not just considering what you want, but also what seems good to him, what glorifies him. Think about, I mean, I just think about all of the decisions I have made to this day. And so much of those decisions are explained by simple fact. What did I want? When we are to ask, yeah, I could figure it out, but God, but is this, this is what I'm thinking. Does this seem good for you? I'm going to wait for authorized action. God, I want to do, God, has it ever been in your life where a decision you were about to make looked so golden? Everything made sense. It was a job of your dreams. Your wife or your husband loved it. Kids loved it. Big promotion, big financial boost in Hawaii, on an island. I mean, it was everything you ever considered. And somebody comes up to you and says, did you take that decision? Did you make it? You said, no, I didn't take that job. Why? Was it bad pay? No, it was insane pay. Was it a good place? Yes. I didn't take that job because God didn't give me peace. Heaven said no. I think about my life. You think about your life. How often we make decisions without any reference to what God wants. What I want. What I care about. Christians have been for the last hundred years talking about this word called practical atheism. Practical atheism atheism. Martin Luther King Jr. had that in his sermon. Francis Schaeffer wrote a book. Others have wrote a book. And practical atheism is a Christian who intellectually commits to God's existence, but lives a life completely devoid of considering him. I think we are most practical atheists in the way we make decisions. Mercy, when I started to think about this, I started to get worried about all the times, you know, I get to be a pastor, so I get to be at the forefront of so many decisions. I love church. I love talking about church. Call me any day. We'll talk for a couple hours about church. I love church. I love meetings. And I love to make decisions. And I love big decisions. 
And I got so convicted by this. And I'm thinking, God, in our, in our church, I don't know why I'm pointing this. This is like our church, right? God, what's not from you? God, destroy what's not from you so we can expedite our us coming into your will. Because it's not what I want. It's what you want that matters. Mercy Church, I repented. And I said, God, help me decide in such a way that seems good to me and to you. Going forward, I encourage you. You've got some big decisions you're wrestling with. Take it to God. Take it to God. And you might say, Eugene, so how will you know if what God says? I can't tell you. I can't tell. This is not explained from the outside. This can only be explained from the inside. Walk with him. Trust him. Pray. Beg. And I know this. When you commit to him, he will for sure make his way known to you. Are you waiting? Are you waiting on God's authorized action for your life? And you know what? This is where Psalm 57 comes in so handy. How do we wait? How do we wait? How do we wait? And I want to read first three verses. Actually, verse one will make a point. Verse two, make a point. Verse three, make a point. And then we'll have one more point. The question I want to answer today is how do we wait on God? Let's read verse one. This is what David cries out. This is in the cave or sometime around it. This is when David could have solved his problems and taken matters into his hands. Yet David says this, be merciful to me, O God. Be merciful to me, for in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings I will take refuge till the storms of destruction pass by. Point number one that I want you to consider is this. In order for, uh, for us to wait, there needs to be a determination, a discipline, a resolve to pray until. Notice in verse 1, David is saying, God, you're my refuge. God, be merciful to me. And how long is he going to be praying for? How long is he going to consider God to be his refuge? Until. Until his enemies are no more. Here's what our goal is. I'm going to wait on you, God, until I have an answer. I will pray, God, until I have an answer. God, I will wait and hang my hat on and believe in the promise you have for me until I see that promise fulfilled. God, I'm coming to you for your green light. I'm coming to you to see if this is your will, and I'm going to wait for you to make that clear in my life. Until. Waiting is a practice of waiting to the end. You do not wait when you're distracted. When you pray once and forget about it, and then a couple years later, just off the cuff, pray about it again, that's not waiting. Waiting is checking in into this game, this discipline of saying, God, until this happens, I'm waiting. 
I'm going to continue to pray. I'm going to continue to pray for this promise. I'm going to continue to seek your will until I come to its end. I think about, I think about what happens when we're waiting. You know what happens when we're waiting? We often have abandoned projects, abandoned prayers. You probably have a house in your house. I don't know. I'm just assuming my house has definitely this. Projects that I started that I never finished. Things that have never been finished. I think about myself. Maybe you think about yourself. How many prayers you took up to God that you have unfinished business with? We have abandoned prayers all over the place. That's not waiting. When we are giving up on waiting on God... We often settle for compromise. Do you know the story of Abraham? Do you know what happens in those 25 years that he was waiting for his son? He tried to solve God's problem. You know what he does? Or him and Sarah? Sarah offers her servant Hagar for Abraham to have a child with her so that the promised child that God gave to Abraham can come true. David, excuse me, Abraham is trying to force God's hand. He's tired of waiting. Every time we give up on waiting, there's usually a compromise somewhere. Someone might be seeking marriage and is tired of asking God for a spouse. So compromises on their standards. Someone is seeking provision in their life. And they're not having enough money and they have this promise right here that God will supply all of my needs, but I'm lacking and God will supply all my needs and I have a need, but God will supply all my needs. And all of a sudden, we compromise on our integrity. We engage in shady business because we're trying to force God's hands. When we give up, when we check out of the game of waiting, compromise often follows The discipline of waiting. David writes, until, until the storms of destruction pass by. I want to have that in my life until. Here are my prayers. Here are the promises I'm praying for. Here are the things I'm seeking God's will for. And until I have an answer, I'm waiting. Number two. Oh, this is so good. Verses two. To wait on God is to hang your hat, trust, the most beautiful words, you ready? Trust the God who fulfills his purpose for you. Mercy, did you know this is in the Bible? Have you ever read this? Let me read this to you. I cry out to God most high, to God who fulfills his purpose for me. I grew up in the church And the sermon I heard often is you got to feel God's purpose for your life. And you do. But the reason you're able to fulfill God's purpose for your life is that God fulfills his purpose for your life. Your work stands on the shoulders of his work. He's engaged in your life. He's interested in your life. God who fulfills his purpose for me. Do you believe that about him? God is fulfilling his purpose for your life. You matter. Your life matters. 
Some of us have such deep disappointment with our lives. Some of us have such a deep angst about where we are today. Some of us have such deep fear about not making much of our days or our lives are not coming to much. What do you do? Oh, man, how's your life? Oh, man, it's so boring, dude. Listen, 8 to 5, Monday to Friday, a couple of kids, blah, 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 nothing. Christian, you have no idea what you're talking about. Your life is glorious. God is committed to you. We often think that reality is what we see in front of us. It's a 2D world. That's all it is. That's not reality. The physical world, the individual and the context, and how the individual interacts with the uh, context is pretty much how you explain reality. The Bible would say absolutely not. Reality is so much more than meets the eye. Reality is so much more than what we see. Behind your life and the surface of the details of your life is a God who's bent on fulfilling the purpose he has for you. C.S. Lewis said these words, and this is an example. Remember that the dullest, most uninteresting person, when you talk to who you talk to, may one day be a creature which if you saw it now, you will be strongly tempted to worship. And then he continues and says this. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal. And their life is to, our, is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit that become everlasting splendors. He's saying about the future and our resurrection from the dead and what's the glory that's waiting for us. And he's saying there's way more than meets the eye. I want to add to this. There's way more than meets the eye about your life and the surface of your details. What is God doing in our lives? I know his purpose for your life. The purpose for his life is that your life would be well lived and not wasted. The purpose he has for your life is that it ends with a well done, good and faithful servant and does not end with depart from me. The purpose he has for you in your life is that you would live in his will. The purpose he has for you is that your life would be a life of glory for him. The purpose he has for your life is that you would have a life of joy and peace. And he's committed to fulfilling that. He's committed to fulfilling that. And let me tell you why that matters. Because that means I can wait. Because I know life is not passing me by. That means I can wait. This means I can wait. Because I know that silence isn't absence. That the silence of God, the silence of heaven, where is God, does not mean absence because God is working out his purpose for my life. That means that the details of my life are precious to him. I believe that in a season of waiting, this is the song you really need. The God who fulfills his purpose for me.
the God who fulfills his purpose for me. God, there's so much I don't control. God, there's so much I don't know. God, there's so much I've messed up. God, there's so many regrets I have, and yet I believe and trust that you are a God who fulfills your purpose for me. Number three, verse three. Live with expectation. Look at verse three. When you're waiting, you ought to be expecting. He will send from heaven and save me. He will put to shame him who tramples on me. God will send out his steadfast love and his faithfulness. David is full of expectation. Waiting requires expecting. If I get a package on my door, somebody rings, I open it, there's a package, and I wasn't expecting it, then that means I wasn't waiting for it. But if there's a package that comes and I expected it, that means I was waiting for it. David is expecting God to do something, that God will be the one who will save him. That God will be the one who will put to shame those who trample on him. That God will be the one who will send out his steadfast love and his faithfulness. Mercy Church, in waiting, it is so important to be expecting. Expectation says it's going to happen. God, here's my prayer. I know the answer isn't here yet, but it's going to happen. God, here's a promise I'm not seeing fulfilled in my life, but it's going to happen. God, here's something I need authorized. I need to know if this is your will, this decision that I'm thinking. He will make it clear. Expectation. You know, kids are super good at this. All parents know you can never promise a child anything. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Because the moment you promise a child something, that's it. They will cling to it. They will hold on to it. They will remind you day and night. They will ask you, Dad, when is that going to happen? God, you, Dad, you promised. Dad, you promised. That's, I think that's a picture of what we're to do with God in prayer. God, we're expecting. You promised. God, you said you're going to hear our prayers. We're expecting. I love the story. I have to read this story. It's from Acts chapter 12. If you can go to Acts chapter 12 with your Bible. Because it is just so golden. This is a story where expectation and prayer weren't on the same page. Let me read to you from verse 1 through 12, and we'll just talk about it because it's so good. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw it, it pleased the Jews. He proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after Passover to bring him out to the people so that Peter was kept in prison. But earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. How beautiful. A church praying for somebody. Now watch this. Verse 6, now when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter, <laughs> like on a cheek, on the side, and woke him up, saying, get up quickly. 
and the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did this. And he said to him, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. Now I'm going to skip to verse 12. So Peter gets out of jail. The church is praying for him. When he realized this, that he's actually out of jail, he was dazed, sleepy. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting, it was so. And they said, it's his angel. But Peter continued knocking. And they, when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. I love this. They're praying for Peter. <laughs> They're praying for Peter. And then Rhoda comes and says, Peter's at the door. And they're like, no. We're praying for Peter to be saved. <laughs> but Peter is saved. No, you're out of your mind. But no, Peter's at the door. No, that's his angel. We're going to continue to pray. The God delivers Peter. Oh, we could be waiting, abandoned waiting, or we could be waiting without expectation. How many prayers have we offered to God and never hung around or stuck around to see him answer, expecting that he'll answer? When I was a child, I remember I used to play a dumb game with other guys or boys. It was called Ding Dong Ditch. You remember that? Just what is wrong with people? And what you do is you pick a house, a victim, and you walk to that door and you knock on the door and you run and you hide behind a bush and you see somebody open the door and kind of look around. And for a boy, that is just absolute honey. Like, oh my goodness, that's so funny, which is weird. <laughs> and uh, you know what? I think that's what we do with prayers. Come to him. We knock on the door of God's throne. Say, God, give me this. God, help me here. And flee never to see how God answers. How God wants to answer. Never stick around to see God answer. Waiting people expect God to do things. You know, I want to just say, if you're praying for salvation of someone, expect it will happen. If you're praying for healing, expect it will happen. Now you might say, Eugene, but what if God doesn't? I don't know. I'm commanded to persevere in prayer. I'm commanded to be consistent in my prayer. I'm commanded to ask God always. Like that persistent widow. David lives with expectation that God will do as he pleases. Do you live with expectation? I want to talk to you a little bit about to pessimists and optimists. Who's a pessimist here? Anybody? Who's an optimist? All right. <laughs> pessimists will never raise their hand. Optimists are like, yeah, of course, I love this. <laughs> they say that uh, optimists invented the plane. The pessimist invented the parachute. And that we need both kinds of people in our society. But listen. Optimism isn't necessarily expectation. Optimism is more of a trait of a personality where you just kind of feel like good things will turn out. 
faith, a believer. Trust that God will be the one who will do something. Don't mistake in your optimism for true faith and expectation. Is your expectation grounded and anchored in a God who provides? A word for pessimists. You know, it's easy for pessimists to give themselves an excuse. No trait or quirk of our personality is ever an excuse for disobedience. You can be negative about the fuel price. You could be negative about the election in 2024. You can be negative about the market price. But be a pessimist on that. But as a believer, you expect. You expect God to work. Martin Lloyd-Jones, one of my favorite pastors, said that the problem we have is that too often... We listen to ourselves rather than speaking to ourselves. How are your thoughts? How are your words when it comes to expectation? Are you watching out? Are you breathing life? Are you breathing that God will do this? Expect. Number four, and we could get the keys up here. I'm going to read Psalm 57, but I'm going to skip down to verses 7 through 11. Because waiting and people who wait have to do one more thing. Very, very important. They have to worship God. They ought to be praising God as they're waiting. Look at verses 7 through 11. My heart is steadfast, O God. My heart is steadfast. This is David. In all the troubles he has. This is David waiting to finally be king. I will sing and make melody. Awake my glory. Awake, O harp and lyre. I will awake the dawn. Which means I'm going to be praising God before sunrise. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations. For your steadfast love is great to the heavens. Your faithfulness to the clouds be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be all over the earth. This ingredient is absolutely necessary. As you're waiting on an answer, as you're waiting on a promise, as you're waiting on authorized action, be Praising God. Worship is so key for us. Worship, like, I don't know, I don't have the word right now, but basically like maintains, upkeeps our heart. Worship does that. First, worship is ascending the, the mountain of God. I believe worship, because I always think in analogies and practical terms, I think worship is basically getting in your car and the way you would get in a car and drive to Mount Rainier National Park and get out of your car and see this glorious mountain. When we worship God, focus in. We're getting in our car and driving up to behold his greatness. That's what worship does to us. And that greatness nourishes us in a season of waiting. You cannot wait without a sense of the beauty and the glory and the greatness of God. Worship 
and glorifying God in a season of waiting proves to our hearts that it's him we love, not his gifts. It's he who is important and not what he will only give me. See what you do in worship? You celebrate who he is. You celebrate what he's like, and you're telling your heart, hey, as much as you want those answers, as much as you want those gifts, he's awesome. He's worthy of praise. Worship fills our hearts with joy because you were made for it. Anything you were made for makes sense, right? If you use a tool, a shovel to do something around the house that wasn't, it wasn't made for, it just doesn't work. Your life will never make sense until you become a worshiper. For he made you for his glory. That's joy. That's meaning. This is why when we sing a song like we're going to sing right now, worship God. Be praising God. Make sure that in a season of waiting, as you're going to, Stand firm, and you're not going to let up. You're not going to give up. You're not going to abandon your prayers. You're not going to take them back up. Make sure you are praising him. Now I'm going to end briefly here. I have three conclusions. I was like, which conclusion do I choose? So I decided to end with three conclusions. Conclusion number one. Concluding this sermon, the sermon on waiting. I want to tell you something. You want to be waiting on God. This is how you live with God. This is how you walk with God. This is how you have dealings with God. This is how God becomes part of your Monday and your Wednesday. This is how God becomes part of the fabric of your life. Because you're waiting. You have dealings with God. You're waiting on this answer. You're waiting on that promise. You have dealings with God. But the passage that I want to leave with you is this. Those who wait on God will not be put to shame. It doesn't say those who ask will not be put to shame. It's those who ask and wait and wait and wait. They will never be put to shame. Conclusion number two, wrapping up this sermon series. Somebody texted me after the sermon and said, that God gives us a song if we ask. I want to ask you right now, in the season of your life you are in, do you have a song? Would you ask God for a song? He is delighted to give you. Week one, we talked about deep hurt and betrayal. And how David's song was that God is a shield around him. That's his song for his hurt. In week two, we talked about moral failure and sins and shame. And David's song was that he purges me with hyssop. And we detailed what that means. But that's his song. In week three, we talked about how David has victory over all his enemies. And his song is an eruption of praise about God. And that's his song. And today, we're talking about a season of waiting. And a song that says, God, you fulfill your purpose for my life. Do you have a song? Do you know what you need? God does and God wants to reveal you a song. 
But conclusion number three is this. I have to end with our champion, Jesus, our Savior. And I was thinking about this sermon series. I was thinking, well, what, what song did Jesus have? Like, what got Jesus through everything that he went through? I do not know exactly if this is it, but this is part of it. This is not all there is, but I know one song that Jesus had, one song he had. It's in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 2. It tells us why and how and what gave Jesus the strength and the courage to go through the suffering. And it says this in Hebrews chapter 12. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Do you know what Jesus' song was? Joy. Joy. But I love how Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, does not tell us whose joy. Because this joy is not contained, and this joy cannot just apply to one. For the joy of the Father, he endures the cross. For the joy of heaven, he endures the cross. For the joy of angels, he endures the cross. And for your joy, he endures the cross. My question to you today is, do you trust him? Do you have a relationship with God? That's joy. For that joy, he endures the cross. The gospel is this. First, that God made us, okay? That means he has an absolute claim on us. Our dealings with God, like it or don't like it, he is our creator. But our sin, our fallenness comes against him. We have a debt to pay. And yet God in his love and mercy provides a sacrifice. He sends his son to die for our sin that we may live in forgiveness and have eternal life. By trusting in him. Repenting of our sins and trusting in him. It's a gift on offer. It's free. And so I want to ask you today, have you made peace with this God? He's after your joy. Let's pray. Oh God, we thank you so much for all of your blessings. God, we know how important it is for us to hold on to truth as we go through life, to anchor ourselves in your holiness, your righteousness, who you are, your identity. So God, I pray that for each of your children here, give us a song. You know what we need. You know how discouraged we are. You know how broken we may be. Give us a song. God, I also pray for all of us who are in a season of waiting. May we not abandon our prayers. May we persist. May we not make decisions with our soul, um, just thinking about what we want, but make decisions waiting on your confirmation. God, I pray for this church, and I pray for anyone who doesn't know you, that you would draw their hearts to yourself, and that they may put and trust in you. In your name I pray, amen.